for whatever reason, it's become profitable to 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 to, to boost woke, and companies are going to continue to do that, even if they don't actually believe in the ideas, even if they don't know who Michel Foucault is. It doesn't matter to them. They just realize that if you propagate his ideas during the halftime show of the NBA, people like it and buy the sneakers. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Oh, Rob, how's it going, man? Thanks for being on. Going great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, dude. Uh, I love your work. Today, we're going to talk about some uh, lofty things because uh, I think both of us are in a similar vein, at least in this regard. Uh, you seem to be doing a lot of work that looks at institutions that, that are in uh, the American West and kind of investigating what's going on with some of those things. And so you've done a lot of documentary filmmaking to kind of investigate those things. And I've been pretty much since the beginning of this podcast, really after that, that same thing. And a lot of what I'm doing is trying to find a descriptive way to speak about what's going on in the culture. And uh, very often that means what's going on in these various institutions. So today I want to talk to you about the political world. I want to talk to you about the uh, legacy media world, news media world. And then I also want to talk to you about the uh, the Academy. And you've got even short films, but some documentary films that dig into all of those things that I'm just absolutely elated to share with my audience because they're just, they're really fantastic, man. Um, so good work on that. But before, before we kind of jump into that, I'll just say this about it. Um, my main concern with doing that is that there seems to be this institutional erosion that is going on that is creating, in my mind, an, a sense of polarization that almost feels like we're living in two Americas now. You think you got the red states and the blue states, and now we're not even talking about federal elections. And then there is also not only an increased sense of polarization, but there's also this increased, at least from my worldview and the people that I know, um, this increased sense of mistrust in institutions that is going on right now. And I think a lot of that lays at the feet of the of the woke movement. And so uh, I'll dig into what I mean about that, but I want to be really careful to not just throw out those words. So I want to give some descriptions about, uh, about those things. So we'll do that by virtue of some of the films that you've done. But before we do that, tell us just a little bit about Good Kid Productions and what you guys do there. Well, man, I mean, I agree with you about the legacy media institutions completely clowning themselves, particularly over the last three to four years. I mean, it was already a problem before Trump got elected. Trump gets elected. Sure. And it was really just a profound, like catastrophic uh, dysfunction that begins infecting these institutions, all the all the legacy prestige media institutions. And part of what we do is critique it, right? Part of yeah. it's like, I don't like it when the New York Times lies to me. It's not fun when the NPR lies to me. It's not fun when the vice president lies to me. But at the same time, that also provides an opportunity. Right? It's an opportunity to try to build stuff that does earn people's trust, doesn't feel like you're just towing, you're just holding water for one of the you know primary political tribes in America. Yeah. And that you could speak about complicated, provocative issues in a, in a complex way with like high level of storytelling craft, which, so that's basically Good Kid Productions is the um, video production shop that I run with uh, my business partner and we've got some employees as well. I got my start as a freelancer, essentially, like a freelance documentarian for a variety of libertarian YouTube channels. Um, 
including Reason Television, which is the YouTube channel arm of Reason Magazine, which is the which is, you know, <laughs> the, the intellectual heart of the professional libertarian movement, whatever that is, right, <laughs> whatever yeah. that is, that's a, that's always on the verge, uh, always on the verge of having legitimate political power in America. And then the success of some of the videos that I did for those channels got us the opportunity to create our own in-house shop, build a team and build our own channel. So okay. we launched our own channel almost exactly a year ago with this documentary defending Kanye West's decision to run for president. <laughs> yeah. right, come on now. And yeah, you've got some some interesting videos, that's for sure. It the the brand is distinctive, even if yeah. the brand is not necessarily coherent or has uh, a widespread <laughs> appeal. I I yeah. never I told my business partner, you know, the brand is distinctive even if we don't know if it's a long-term via uh, business project. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll you, find you out soon enough. What yeah. you'll see, but you know it will be a wild ride, and you know it'll be about a like a really a pretty eclectic group of stuff. So like you got uh, Ulysses S. Grant from Incel to I got. Come on now. I mean, we, we we could talk about all the great men of history: Ulysses Grant, Kanye West. I mean, come on, Glenn Lowry. <laughs> Anybody you want to discuss, I'm happy to discuss it later. Yeah, yeah. And. But I think it's it's so it's it's okay. So a collapse of a, a, a completely justifiable collapse of media trust, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Particularly over the um, the disturbances of last summer, the combination of just outright corporate media propaganda related to COVID and outright media propaganda related to um, Black Lives Matter. And we can get into what specifically I'm talking about if you want to. But yeah. the, the justifiable collapse of trust, the complete just ideological co-optation and intellectual mediocrity of a lot of these institutions. But I think there's still an unsatiated consumer uh, hunger for smart things about important issues that are certainly going to have some political valiance to them. Like we obviously have kind of more conservative libertarian politics, but that the, the political angles are justified and well articulated, but that occasionally we're going to veer from any neat political orthodoxy. Maybe mm -hmm. we're going to say things that are going to upset people that, you know, self-style like libertarians or conservatives. That's fine too. Sometimes truth doesn't fit neat ideological packages, right? Right. And I think there's a lot of people that are thirsty for stuff that doesn't fit into this like kind of, you know, like a infinite tribal warfare. And yeah. so that's what we're trying to make. That's who we're trying to feed. That's what we're trying to trying to make for people. And but I, I'd say I just gave a presentation yesterday. When I got started, I got my first fellowship for my first documentary. I think it was 2010. And at that time, I could feel these seismic technological structural shifts in media production and distribution, like that were just happening. So in 2010. Like I, I realized I could make a Hollywood grade movie for less than less than ten thousand dollars worth of equipment, less than five thousand dollars worth of equipment, because yeah. there'd just been rapid advances in video cameras and microphones and editing software. Like I could have everything that I would need to make a a video that could play in a in the same theater they were playing Fast and Furious within 48 hours from Amazon Prime to like in two days with uh with like less for less than $5,000. So the means of production became much more accessible. And then the means of distribution 
this is 2010, so YouTube is taking off, but it's not what it is today. Right. Um, and there certainly aren't a lot of these, like even the you know things like a Rumble or a Facebook or a, a TikTok or Instagram had even really taken off yet either as a means of distribution for video content. Those were also exploding. So it made it easier than ever to make the videos. And you now had all these channels available to you that you could circumvent the kind of staid, stodgy, potentially politically corrupted middlemen that would just stomp on your dreams if you were trying to pitch them a project through traditional corporate Hollywood channels, right? Yeah. So that's also what we're trying to do, which is we don't need to ask anybody's permission to make the stuff that we want to make, right? We can make whatever we want, whatever we find vital, and we could take whatever position we want to take on it, even if it happens to piss off uh, the people that run, you know, most of the major media institutions in this country. Right. Thus, you have Jimmy Carter, Kanye West, and Ulysses S. Grant. Come on now, all the great men of history, right? And <laughs> but also, you can make it at a level of production that yeah. that's that's as good as anything you're going to find on Netflix because it's gotten so much cheaper to make it. Right? Which 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 is so true. So, like, tell me, what's your most viewed? What do you think is your most viewed video is? I know that it's 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 Silence You Part One, so the first installment of my campus free speech series. I think is okay. my, and um, and I think it's I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them just have to have to do with the mysteries of the YouTube algorithm, right? Yeah. But I think it came out at a time in which the campus free speech issue was at its zenith, in terms of people being like, "Yo." we're breeding a lot of authoritarianism among the cognitive elite <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and people begin to worry. Well, like if, if the, if like if the students at these elite institutions are being trained that it's okay <laughs> to shut down people you dislike, it's okay to romanticize your own psychological frailty and kind of weaponize it in order to shut down people you don't like what's going to happen when they graduate from these elite institutions and yeah. then take over in, in the adult world, right? Yeah. And back then in 2012, 2013, people like, no, they will just grow out of it. Come on. They'll okay. become adults. Right, you're, you're a soft, every, every sophomore thinks that they found like uh, the solution to all of life's deepest mysteries, that they're the first person to think that, well, you know, communism has just never been tried. Yeah. It, it, it's great in theory, but not in practice. Like they're the first person to ever think that thought. But once you get out into the job market, the adults in charge are going to, you know, uh, slap them on the wrists and they're going to grow up. And, and like, why, why, why are conservative media institutions making such a big deal of the, of the free speech problems on college campuses? And back then we we're like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think that they might bring this agenda and these like really, really, um, you know, uh, illiberal illiberal techniques with them. And sure enough, we got vindicated. Like these yeah. people, the same people that are at Brown or Yale or Harvard or Wesleyan or Vassar or University of Michigan that were being rewarded for censoring their ideological opponents when they're, when they're juniors are now like taking over, are entering in and taking over the New York Times or New Yorker or CNN. Yeah. Or well, it's, it's so interesting. George Orwell, who's the, also the author of 1984, as I'm sure you know, said that some ideas are so foolish that only smart people can believe them. So this is actually a historical thing that we always see, man, is that like these, uh, that authoritarianism usually is bred in elitist circles. Right. It, 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 and the, and it's it, it got it, it got baked in there for a couple of decades within the institutions that were training the the like the next generation of elites and we're getting to witness 
we're getting to, to witness like the wreckage that gets wrought by them once they start running the institutions of the adult world, mm-hmm. right? But the one thing that, the one other thing that I, I wanna say is I think part of the reason Silence You Part One did so well, and this is what we always aspire to, again, to various degrees of success, is to take some issue that people kind of understand, but then attack it from funky angles, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not like, it, like okay, fine. Oh, it's like, oh, so these guys are kind of libertarian conservatives and they're talking about campus speech. I bet you I can guess exactly what the next 13 minutes of this documentary are going to be like, right? Yeah. And what we want to do is be like, no, man, like we're, we're going to, we're this is going to go in directions and we're going to tell stories and we're going to make, you know, arguments we're going to attack from analytical angles that you are going to be like whoa what the fuck is this? like what is happening here yeah. and we're always trying to do that i mean not always successfully but we're, we're doing yeah i mean i was just editing a a, a, a a very ambitious doc this morning and there are lines in it that i say are lines in it that contributors say that are going to catch a lot of people by surprise, that they're they're gonna think that they know what they're watching. And then like at the seven minute mark or so, they're gonna be like, wait a minute, what is happening? So that's what you're trying to do is like, at least say it with some creativity and some some unorthodox storytelling angles. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fantastic. All right, so let's dig into uh, some of those. I know we've done that a little bit with Silence You, but let's dig into kind of that first realm. Cause again, um, your stuff, and I forgot to mention this up front, but I want my viewers to know your stuff has has been featured on things like New York Times, The Washington Post, The Economist, USA Today. Uh, you were even on Adam Carolla's podcast. Um, and so you've been all over the place. Your stuff has been featured in a lot of places. And I'm really amazed at kind of the caliber of talent, actually, that you can uh, that you bring on as guests whenever you have one on one conversations, because you guys do that, too. Um, people like uh, Glenn Lowry, who is a dude just like I absolutely he's my spirit animal. I love that dude. Um, <laughs> That's and, one uh, of my he, he's a, he's in the documentary that I'm working on right now. <laughs> OK, can, can you tell by the way, let's just sidestep for just one moment real quick. Uh, can you tell me what you're working on? Is that a secret? Uh, it's uh uh I don't want to uh I don't want to give away too much but it's about an enormous scandal at a very prominent American institution okay. that I think encompasses every important trend in American intellectual life in 2021. Okay. Like there's five or six very interesting things that are happening with the way that um what I want to say it encompasses cancel culture, it encompasses identity politics, it encompasses accusations of racism, it uh, encompasses the kind of corruption of the institutions that we trust to, t- to tell us the truth. It's all, all that happens in this very specific scandal, this very specific story that most people, that if most people don't know, but should be compelled by within the first 12 seconds of the documentary. That's mm-hmm. That's what I'll say. That's and, okay. it, and it, ha- it has some of my favorite favorite people in it. I mean, I, Glenn, I I don't know if this is going to be interesting, but there's ways in which Glenn, the fact that I've gotten a chance to work with Glenn Lauer, this professor of economics at Brown University, as much as I have, I think he's been in like six or seven of the the documentaries we've done. He's also I've gotten a chance to do an interview show with him, and he is, you know, I think it's fair to say he is the single most eloquent person Mm -hmm. I've ever met in my life. I'm like, this is like, he might be the most eloquent person in the English speaking world. 
Like yeah. people can just go watch blogging heads. They can go watch the Glenn show, like his ability to formulate sentences in real time about complicated issues and boil them down to their essence and make some incredible like point about whatever that issue is it, it, improvisationally is miraculous, right? Like yeah. it's divine. I should not have access to him. Right. Like I'm, <laughs> right. I, I'm just a guy, like we're just some dudes, right? We got a We got a YouTube channel. We got a Facebook channel. I have 724 Instagram followers. Like I'm just a guy, like I shouldn't have access to him, but Glenn to a certain extent is not as famous as he ought to be. He's not as yeah, difficult 100%. to access as he ought to be because all he does is flame woke orthodoxy, right? Yeah. He, he's like, his exact inverse is a guy like Ibram X. Kendi, which who we've done a, a documentary about, who's a transparent intellectual mediocrity. Like all he does is recite the seven staid talking points. Yeah. He was racism taught- is racist, right. racist people that are racist. Right, like that, that, that he learned in his sophomore year, right? Yeah. But he gets feted by all the prestigious, wealthy media institutions in the country because he happens to conform to this very particular political script. Like, he, yeah. you can't get access to Kendi because he's too busy doing $20,000 an hour Zoom sessions for private schools in West Los Angeles or too busy working on his new like multi-part Netflix special, right? Yeah. Glenn should be on Netflix. Glenn should 100%. be on HBO, right? Like he should, doesn't because all he does is just ruin these people's, uh, he, all he does is just like firebomb their political orthodoxy. Yeah. There's a cottage industry and so he's too dangerous, right? But, but he's, he's amazing. And the fact that I'm able to get access to him, again, that's actually part of this opportunity that emerges from this kind of systemic institutional failure of the legacy media, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into that. So we'll may, let, hold the media off for just a moment, but uh, let's just jump into the political realm. So you did a documentary about um, uh, one called Trump is Destiny. You also did one uh, about Jimmy Carter and uh his campaign and uh i, I want to flavor that just a little bit for my audience and just kind of tell them and then i'll uh, let you jump in who who actually did the film uh but needless to say uh, let me illustrate first that i think one of the ways in which we are feeling this anxiety this tension in america is that is something that you describe in the film which is hey if you and at least in the jimmy carter aspect of the film you say hey if you don't like trump Maybe you should like somebody like Jimmy Carter. And essentially what you're saying is, is maybe if you don't like Trump, maybe we shouldn't make the executive branch so increasingly big and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I would say there's a lot of people who I hope are um, out of the echo chamber enough to realize that the increasing scale of government getting bigger and bigger is – is, is one, first of all, an objective reality. It is happening. And then two, secondly, is an issue, is a problem, and something certainly this nation was not founded upon. And so uh, it's undeniable that it is happening. Where we probably can have some debate is the pros and cons of such a thing happening. But there is, I think, generally speaking, certainly for me, uh, so I can speak for myself, an uneasiness with the growth of the executive branch and how much emphasis we consistently put upon the president as though he is the new the new monarch of America. Um, and, and I'm a little bit concerned with the fact that, I mean, we're actually, if we're not already there, we're going to get 
uh, slowly but surely get to that place because the executive branch continues to grow uh, increasingly in power and in everybody's mind as the biggest thing um, on the, uh, in the in the American electoral system, when really we should be focusing perhaps way more on what's happening on a state and local level. So, what motivated you to make uh, to make films about this, and kind of even what motivates you? Well, I wanted you to. Um, so, you you said there's the 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 Trump documentary though has two there's two clauses in it, right? Okay. So you said this is funny though because the first clause is Trump is destiny. And then I got invited after I went out onto a bunch of right-wing talk shows, right? Like kind of drive time, AM radio, mouth breathing, like exactly the kind of just like boring, predictable, tribal, political radio that you'd expect, right? Yeah. Because they basically, they didn't watch the film and they just saw Trump as destiny. They're like, oh, here's someone else that's part of the tribe. Because the second clause in the title of the documentary is, I think it's why the reality television show presidency was inevitable, right? Uh. And we don't say yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I don't say I reality TV show presidency as a compliment. It's not a compliment, but that what the doc is trying to say is that it, and I did it right after he got, I think it came out in 2016. I think it came out right after he got elected, where I was noting that this that the idea that a single person serves as the gravitational center yeah. for the entire national political conversation is the inevitable consequence of trends in the presidency dating back a hundred years that it that having a single person suck up all the oxygen in the room is very bad for democracy it's very bad for policy it gives a specific branch of the federal government way too much power and it's in direct contradiction to what the, the kind of founders envisioned when they built the underlying kind of legal architecture for the federal government that yeah. they like back then 250 years ago they saw exactly that this could happen. They saw the temptation of making the president the great man, making him a semi-deity. And they built particular like mechanisms into the governance structure of America to prevent that from to happening. That and though, the, and, but those, those safeguards have sort of been trampled over because there isn't enough kind of public pushback to kind of further annexation of powers that ought to be. And I just want to insert this. I just want to insert this in here real quick, because this is what some people don't realize that the it, it, because I think it underscores the brilliance of the founding of our country is that there is some element of incompetence written into the foundation of, of or, or the formation of our government. So the checks and balances idea is that these guys are not supposed to be able to accomplish too much because we're not trying to make sure that they have too much power. Um, so uh, I know that's something we get frustrated with. And obviously, we want returns on our investment. We're going to be paying taxes. We're going to vote for people, all that stuff. Ob yes. So, yeah, we want that. But there is a certain sense in which now we flipped that and, and said, yes, we have expectations on our political class. But we flipped that to say, now we want everything that we want to come from these people that were never meant to give us these things. And they were supposed to be perfectly, uh, perfectly not that powerful. Right. And my, my and I my, at the time, the 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 line on Trump was that he is this historic anomaly that he came yeah. out of nowhere. We've never had anyone like this. And, you know, there's ways in which that's true in terms of just like, I think, his internal psychological makeup. But <laughs> what I was trying to say is in, in terms of uh, of the the he's actually the kind of inevitable, grotesque extension of a trend that had been propagated by presidents essentially dating back to FDR mm -hmm. right? that he actually if you look at it from a different angle he's part of a lineage that is bipartisan 
and that is it that has stretches back a while and what we kind of in the doc what we attempt to do is kind of go from individual case study to individual case study of different presidents fdr truman jfk and a specific kind of new attribute that they added to the presidency an attribute that is unconstitutional and deeply unhealthy for a democratic republic right yeah. but being like yo all these different features of trump that you're now uh, 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 kind of horrified by um we kind of did this to ourselves <laughs> we did this to ourselves can yeah, i say sure. one interesting thing though which is back then there it was still we didn't know like it was early enough in the Trump presidency, you didn't know how much of the formal powers of the president he would actually use, right? Because he got gifted all sorts of kind of grotesque unconstitutional powers by his president's predecessor, Barack Obama, who everybody wanted to say was like clearly just a dramatic, this was a dramatic break. And we're like, no, no, man, like you you have Obama, <laughs> you have Obama signing off on signature, uh, uh, signing off on drone strikes of American citizens and everybody being real quiet about that. Yeah. And like, if you think about it for a second, like this is probably insane that a single person can just rain death on American citizens. And so, so Trump inherits this like package of powers that were clearly not intended to be afforded the president. And it was to be seen how much he would use them. What was kind of remarkable four years later is how reluctant he was to use them. That mm -hmm. the, the Trump presidency became almost purely theatrical. That the only thing that he really cared about was the was the media circus, was the storytelling aspect, was winning on Twitter, was winning the cable news cycle, and how little he was willing to kind of aggressively embrace and use a lot of the actual powers of the office itself. Yeah. And that actually is kind of like the next grotesque evolution where it becomes purely theater. It's not even about power anymore. It's yeah. purely about the theater of the, the, the grand demon or the grand savior, depending upon your politics, and us just us just fighting about him in 12-hour Twitter cycles. Well, th this is where the Jimmy Carter thing comes into play, right? Because uh, what's Jimmy Carter doing in 2020, which is just a funny title, by the way, uh, uh, is I love your approach here because you're doing what you actually say is, oh, I know where this is going. Um, and you you kind of flip things on, on, on its head when you say, if you don't like Trump, well, then vote Democrat. Well, you say, well, if you don't like, uh, that's where you think you might go. Um, if you don't like Trump, well, then maybe we're looking at the presidency totally wrong. And maybe Jimmy Carter wasn't as bad as we think he was because he was trying not to be a, a demigod. He was not trying to be a monarch or, a, uh, or create demagoguery, which we blame Trump for. So maybe our problem is all of us looking so deeply to these people as, as our savior. And he, so Carter was basically the only president of the last hundred years who really explicitly made a point to reject the deification of the presidency and he got punished for it. He became one of these, the, the select ignoble few yeah. that lose their reelection bid. And he says in the doc specifically, like a lot of people want the president to be their God, to be their King, to be royalty. And I don't want to do that. Like mm -hmm. I'm a simple peanut farmer, man. Like, and you could just, I mean, he doesn't have, you know, there's there's plenty of things in his policy record that I disagree with, but in terms sure. of in terms of setting the groundwork for a lot of the kind of more radical deregulation that happened under the, the Reagan administration, Carter 
had a big role to play with that. I mean, particularly deregulating the airline industry. Like he did all sorts of things that a recent magazine would love, but doesn't really get talked about because the standard media narrative about him is that he's a mediocre failure. He's only a mediocre failure because he wouldn't play the game yeah. of constantly billing himself as the God King savior, which Trump <laughs> clearly uh, had no compunctions about. Right. <laughs> he's more than willing to play that game, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So um, so there's so much more we could say there, but essentially we're seeing right now um, this play out, right? Because, of course, because of the dishonesty of the media, we talked about how fascist Trump was, but we're seeing complete overreach by the federal government in a continued basis with, with Joe Biden in a multitude of different ways that are too much to illustrate, but not the least of which is a vaccine mandate that was unconstitutional from inception and then we hear him consistently make comments like i don't know if this is unconstitutional or not and then all of us are just like oh joe um and he's like uh is that not going to pause anybody and so all right so we're seeing right in front of our face the um the elevation of the executive branch and the the repercussions of such a thing all right um so let's switch to the media perhaps we saw uh right in front of our face just recently in the Rittenhouse trial, um, the most clear way that I've seen in recent memory, um, uh, on, on par, if not more uh, aggressive uh, than um, the way in which the media consistently covered Trump, but also to the way in which uh, 2020 took place and how it became a political tool um, with Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. Uh, but, but we saw right in front of our face yet again with Rittenhouse, um, the media basically lie about this trial at every turn they possibly they possibly could but it's not just lie though it's also okay you get it wrong you get it wrong because you have a clear ideological agenda yeah. then in in stunning detail your narrative gets demolished right it's i think the additional thing that stirs so much public resentment of these institutions is not just that they the, the the ideological agenda and building this false narrative. It's even when they get caught with their pants down, they don't apologize. Yeah, that there's never a, a, a we get a double That's part of also what the the RussiaGate, the continued political fallout for RussiaGate is because not only did they lie repeatedly about collusion, it's now that the Steele dossier has been like revealed to be a democratic oper operation it was unreliable and was deemed unreliable a long time ago there's like nobody gets fired nobody apologizes nobody says we got this wrong nobody says that we were carried away by hysteria they down. right it's, it's it's the joe it's the joe rogan ivermectin thing we get caught with our pants down because sanjay gupta actually has enough gut and it's like yes it is a horse drug also the inventors won the nobel prize yeah and they're just but i think like again i think that it's it I don't know what I don't know what Don Lemon's ratings are. I can't imagine they're particularly <laughs> impressive. I think a lot of them have taken yeah. a hit since the the big bad man with orange hair was ejected from the White House. But it's being reflected also in, a, in people's media consumption habits. It's like who who under sixty five years old voluntarily watches CNN? Yeah. Like I might I might have to I, I might have to get a little bit of the mind cancer when when I catch it out of the corner of my eye when I'm at the dentist's office or yeah, at yeah, an yeah. airport. But like. I, me and nobody that I know who's under 65 that's not like <laughs> dementia addled and bedridden voluntarily watches CNN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? 
I only watch it one when, when there's a viral clip of Joe Rogan owning one of the CNN hosts, right? Like <laughs> you're getting to witness these titanic shifts and the power of yeah. in the media industry in real time. Yeah. So I, I want to run something by you real quick because I, I want to save kind of like the per, uh, really kind of philosophical underpinnings of this stuff for for in a moment because I want to talk about where we think all these things are coming from. But I just I want to run this idea by you and see what you think. I heard Tim Pool say this. You know Tim Pool. Okay, so I heard Tim Pool say this, that he doesn't think that it's just merely that uh, it's not alone that these guys know what clickbait is and they know that outrage sells. It's not just that, right? Because they, like, for instance, CNN getting caught with their death meter, their death toll meter, because they knew that people would do that. And, uh, and then Project Veritas exposing their, that uh, very overt trick. Um, but it's also... Um, it's also this. Tim Pool said that he thinks what actually happened in 2020 is that the, um, and probably a little bit before, to be fair, is that these media institutions that are in bed with the Democratic Party um, overplayed their hand, and they and they were so aggressively anti-Trump that actually what they did is they scared away their moderate viewers, and then they were only left with very far left-leaning viewers because everybody with common sense went away from those people. And then, therefore, what they have to do now in Joe Biden's presidency is they have to make a decision. Do we actually go back to actually being real journalists, or do we realize that now we're left with this group of people who are still watching this, and we have to cater to the demands of these people who are watching us? And so it's 24-7 outrage, 24-7 uh, Joy Reid being incredibly racist, and all these other things. Um, uh, so what, what do you think about that? Like, uh, where is this overt desire to lie to the American public coming from. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I ultimately, though, if I have to choose between assuming it is, um, let me tell you, let me, let me respond with an anecdote. And then I think, uh, which is, I recently uh, took my kids back to Los Angeles, which is where I'm from, to visit their grandmother. Okay. To, to go horseback riding in Malibu and to go in a pool, enjoy perfect 72 degree weather. So I went back, what, two weeks ago to LA. And then a year ago, we went back as well. And so two years, so a year ago when I went, the downtown village of this cozy little whatever, affluent corner of West Los Angeles that I'm from was completely plastered with Black Lives Matter posters, right? Everything, everybody, the juice shop, the gas station, the beloved Italian restaurant, everybody came out and explicitly expressed their solidarity for BLM, right? Fast forward a year later, like all that stuff was gone. Mm. All of it was gone. It all just like disappeared in, in an instant, right? And there was like shockingly little political sloganeering for any, any tribe when we were there. Again, this is West Los Angeles. This is like overwhelmingly kind of woke, progressive, self-satisfied, like affluent technocratic class people, right? And I did say to my mom at the time, I was like, what, what, the, what that revealed to me is how much of what had happened was fashion and not ideological, right? Mm. How much of it was, it was chasing a fashion for capitalist purposes as opposed to ascribing to some specific concrete ideological agenda, right? It's like the, 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 the beloved family Italian restaurant and the and the, the juice crafters that sell $17 keto mojitos doesn't actually... It hasn't read a lot of Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo. It doesn't believe in like structural racism. It knew it had to, had to signal its 
affiliation with that movement at that moment because it was good. Yeah, so it was fashionable. And, and like, basically, that's that's essentially what I think for the likes of CNN and MSNBC. Again, as someone who's not a particular expert, I'm like not a media expert. I don't know their internal mechanics. I don't know their staffing, but I would assume most of it is actually money grubbing capitalist fashion chasing as opposed to a legitimate ideological agenda you know well i I don't know if there's comfort to be taken in that but that's how i read it (laughs) yeah yeah probably not too much comfort there i want to talk about the academy because what you do in silence you is really really interesting um and of course we we already kind of talked about this with glenn lowry and then you also have charles douglas on uh to talk about kind of what is happening with a group of people that should be about learning but are shutting down free speech? Um, you know, they're being reinforced in their kind of unearned moral superiority and the way that they view things instead of considering other people's opinion. They are trying to shut down um, uh, the the public discourse of ideas, and this is most uh, most obvious. And like the and and I know this is kind of a ridiculous example because, frankly, he's a ridiculous person. But Milo Milo Yiannopoulos coming to Berkeley, but you think to yourself, okay, there's no doubt Berkeley's woke. Berkeley's just absolutely nuts. Uh, it's free trade, non-GMO, blah 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 blah. Everything on every corner, artisan. Uh, who knows? Are artisan uh, graphite pencils for everybody in class? Um, but nonetheless, you you also hope that in a prestigious university like Berkeley, this is a place where they're not going to burn and loot and destroy stuff and actively go on news media uh, outlets and say, "Well, we actually think we should aggressively attack anybody that disagrees with us." I mean, this is what these people are actually saying. Um, they th- they were saying, well, we think the Democratic Party has been a little bit too soft in the past, so we think we should use violence to shut people up. Um, so obviously, really stellar intellectual people and stellar work being done in the university. So um, a point though, which is that yeah. I think sometimes what gets lost though in the free speech campus debates is a, a recognition though that free speech is a value, but it's not the ultimate value. The ultimate value of a university is is truth, right? Like your job at this institution is to generate new truth about the universe, right? And free speech is one of the essential preconditions. And the second that you start shutting people down, not based upon the merit of their argument, because of their ideological flavor of their position, you compromise and jeopardize that truth generating function, right? Or in a lot of places, it's they're capable of generating new truth, but only within a very, very narrow band of knowledge because large portions of reality have just been rendered untouchable because you might generate a truth that doesn't fit the kind of dominant ideological narrative. That's right. So yeah. like either either you're not generating truth, like the average anthropology or comparative literature department, all they generate is masturbatory word salads or... Yeah. You know, you work in the biology department, but there's large chunks of the human experience that you do not get to investigate. <laughs> and if yeah. you do investigate, you're going to end up you're going to end up on the front page of Drudge for getting fired. Yeah, you just don't get to touch. So, so let me ask. So let me ask this question real quick. So, in your because I want to be descriptive for for the audience and not just say, oh, well, we're talking about free speech shutting down. And then you've got somebody maybe like at Princeton or something like that, and they're like, we don't shut down free speech. What are you talking about? That's another right wing talking point. So, in your documentary, what is one of the most shocking examples of this taking place on college universities that you guys uncovered? Well, I mean, I think for the second episode of Silence You Part. To in Silence You Part Two in the Silence You series, we the, the 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 anecdote that we investigate is that very famous viral incident 
of a Yale undergraduate shouting down a distinguished professor um, out on the Yale campus. This is maybe four or five years ago. And it turns out that she was yelling at him because of a controversy stemming from guidance that had been provided by the university related to Halloween costumes. So and this I don't is wanna, Christakis, right? Right, Christakis. I, I, I don't want to, there's no need, like if people are interested in the particulars of this of this case, they should just watch the documentary. Okay. But that was a, um, that was an incident in which a, like a small group of professors said that undergraduates at Yale University ought to be treated like adults who are capable of occasionally seeing something or hearing something that they're offended by. And the administrative apparatus, the administrative Leviathan at Yale saying under no circumstances should you be teaching undergrad, should you be treating undergraduates like adults? These are children. These are babies. We need to protect their sensitive souls. And we are going to impose all sorts of micromanage, micro managing rules and regulations on their behavior and their speech in order to protect them from, yeah. from, from these evil traumatic ideas. And, but that, that incident also, and again, as part of what we talked about at the very beginning, part of the way we tell that story though is right around the seven minute mark, we, we, we do a turn and we kind of, re we, we reveal that there's an even deeper scandal than what people think happened in that courtyard. And that scandal is related to what elite educational institutions have devolved into over the last 30 to 40 years. What, 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 what services exactly are they providing consumers? And they're not exactly the services that I think a lot of outside observers guess, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So now, now this is where I wanted to take uh, just a little bit of time to kind of turn it around and say, all right, so we tried to be descriptive about the increasing um, growth of the executive branch of the government with uh, the very obvious cases of lying, uh, specifically in some of the cases we gave with the media, and then also uh, with uh, things that are going on in the academy. And so we see this consistent kind of erosion of, um, of these institutions. And so my question to you is, is where is it coming from because that's what I this is what I spend hours of my life uh, uh, away from my kids and my wife wondering about and thinking about and contemplating where is this increased desire for diversity quotas coming from where is the silencing of free speech on college campuses coming from where are the outright lies of the of the media many that seemed aimed at stoking racial animosity uh, where is it coming from where is the revisionist history coming from that's being taught in public schools through the guise of CRT and um, even uh, the patently unscientific discussion of gender in, in some of these schools as early as, as elementary. Now, so I would call all of those things, I would say, fall under the umbrella of when we use the term the woke movement. I would say they, they, those things all and more make up what the woke movement is. So I'm going to give you my, my thoughts, and then you can certainly react to those, and then I want to hear what you think. And so I think there are three um, symptoms, but one cause. And so the symptoms are as follows, neo-Marxism, postmodernism, and identity politics. I think these ideologies are stoking a lot of what's happening in society today and creating many of the things that are the worst parts of who we are as a society today, uh, cancel culture and all the like and all the other things that I just mentioned. But I think that there's, um, uh, there's something underneath all of that. And what's underneath all of that is an existential crisis, uh, a crisis of meaning that's taking place in the hearts and the minds of people. 
And I think that ultimately comes from the fact that we are increasingly becoming a post-Christian West and a post-Christian America. And there used to be a sense in which we derived our values and our sense of meaning and our sense of purpose from something transcendent, and now we are looking to institutions for what used to be what used to take the place of God, and maybe even people within those institutions uh, to replace God. And what we're finding more and more and more is that those things are crumbling to the ground because they are not sufficient foundation for us to stand on. Now, I'll just be fully uh, transparent and say a lot of that comes because I'm an evangelical Christian. A lot of that comes because I believe in God. I believe that there is a all a, a source, an all-knowing source, a creator being that that put us here on this planet on purpose for a purpose. But nonetheless, I think even if people are listening and they disagree with that perspective, um, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God in the flesh come to um, wake people up. Um, the one thing that we have to realize is, is that we are recognizing a shift the further we move away from those principles that were an undergirding part of the foundation of this nation, ir- ir- irrefutably. The more we move away from that, I think I just have that simple question of how we doing now? Uh, how you like me now? I mean, as we move away from those things, is it making us better or worse? And then if you say, even if you don't believe in God, um, if you say that we are worse now than we were maybe 20 years ago in terms of kind of the cultural fabric, uh, the social fabric of our nation, then perhaps you have to start calling a spade a spade and realize it might be because we're moving further away from these fundamental truths that have girded our nation for such a long time. I mean, as a pretty thoroughgoing atheist, it's uncomfortable for me how much I agree with a lot of what you just said. <laughs> you know, not everything. I'm not going to endorse yeah. it in its entirety. But I mean, part of what's made me push me away from like the standard issue libertarianism that I, I, I kind of subscribed to when I was in my 20s to a more kind of hardy conservatism in my 30s is the recognition that the American experiment is not just about maximizing individual liberty, like you read the founders, and that has to be paired with individual virtue. It only works if there's individual virtue. Mm -hmm. And you need virtue generating and cultivating institutions. And for America that happened to be historically the Christian church, regardless of whether or not the metaphysical claims of the church are true, right? Mm -hmm. You need to have virtue cultivating institutions. Virtue, that also includes parents and communities, which have also been shredded and sometimes they've been shredded because of market forces, which makes it even a little bit more complicated in terms of like exactly how what I think about economic policy. So I'm going to say there's, I mean, there's very smart friends of mine. Basically, there's 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 the kind of like there's the for wokeness right now capturing all these institutions and potentially threatening <laughs> the American project. There's the ideological explanation. There's ideas that people got soaked in that they really believe that they're pursuing. There is the kind of technological explanation, which is some of it is just a function of rapid technological change that maybe the human brain is not quite ready for that leads to all sorts of destabilizing psychological effects that are kind of undergirding. And then there's the third bucket though, which is how much of this is just market-based capitalism that for for whatever reason, it's become profitable to to, 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 to boost woke and companies are going to continue to do that, even if they don't actually believe in the ideas, even if they don't know hmm. who Michel Foucault is, it doesn't matter to them. They just realize that if you propagate his ideas during the halftime show of the NBA, people like it and buy the sneakers, you know, like how much of it is each one of those. Um, yeah. 
I, I do want to say though, I have very smart friends of mine that disagree with me in terms of how much emphasis ought to be put on each one of those buckets. I don't want to downplay though the technological explanation um, in terms of rapid, rapid, like for, obviously in some ways rapid technological progress has been good because it's um, enabled the existence of my company. Like I yep. do appreciate that. Yep. But at the same time, it's also resulted in us putting um, Instagram equipped smartphones in the pockets of 12 year old girls, Yeah, which I think has catastrophic psychological effects, right? So I know you're not talking specifically about social media, but social media obviously plays a huge role in that. And, and also, and like, so it's like, and social media has a bajillion, you know, consequences that I'm not smart enough to be able to comprehend. But like, I do think also social media in a smartphone, meaning you, it's, 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 you, it's always accessible. It follows you everywhere. You can never escape from it. Yeah. can have really bad psychological effects it can make people miserable miserable and lonely and depressed. And then they, for whatever reason, think that there's a political solution to their psychological problems, right? Yeah. Like, do, oh, do, I'm, do, I'm lonely and depressed and anxious. The solution for this is, is some grand woke project that gets uh, Trump out of office. Yeah, this goes back to my belief about God too. So you're probably gonna reject this, but I, I think I think we're replacing God with technology in some ways too. So like I think the re there's an aspect in social media where God's been replaced with the uh, the like button. So now we understand uh, reality based upon what other people tell us is good. And so I think that there's some social conditioning aspects of that that are really really dangerous as well that I think are playing part. Well, it's it's uh, well. What you mean is we have we have taken away God and we've replaced him with the false god of the self. That's yeah. what it is. It's people mm -hmm. now they don't have the traditional transcendent that will force them to kind of overcome the ego. Now they've been told they've been fed this script, which is happiness is just about feeding the ego, and sometimes yeah. that's through social media likes. That's through just indulging any craving you have whenever you have it. And it's about, um, and also rejecting anything that might in the moment restrict your freedom, respect, respect your individual liberty, restrict your ability to like indulge your cravings whenever you feel them, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not that's like the biological reality of gender or it's things like a marriage, right? Or um, I, got, I, I should have more of the examples than that in my brain, but like things that, maybe in the moment increase unfreedom but over the long term make you care about something other than yourself right yeah. and that a lot of people are, are operating under the faulty script that the way to happiness is the indulgence of the ego as opposed mm -hmm. to the transcendence of the ego which for most people through most of history that transcendence has come through traditional religious institutions it has or through community that makes demands on you that you don't just like you got to get off the Insta you got to get off instagram because yeah. the grandma down the street needs her driveway plowed right and all and a lot of that stuff has been dissolving away yeah. and people are left just to just to titillate the ego indefinitely on screens and it's driving them insane yeah yeah so i guess i guess i, I do want to say that i think as much as a lot of our project is about persuasion, political persuasion, trying to make videos that persuade people of particular positions, there's also ways in which a lot of the problems that are now infecting America don't have political solutions. 
it's, it's actually has like physical solutions. Like people just need to get off of their phones. They need to get regular exercise. They need to properly hydrate and they need to have face-to-face conversations with good friends. Like yeah. that I, honestly, regardless of whatever their politics are, if you just replaced 20 hours of screen time with regular physical exercise, sleeping properly, hydrating properly and face-to-face interaction with good friends that aren't mediated by screens, you would solve at least 70% of the political dysfunction in this country, yeah, totally right? Agree. Right, like, yeah. and, and I mean that, and that, like there's plenty of political dysfunction on the right as well. I mean, I don't like, I don't like the cult of, obviously given the documentary we talked about, I don't like the cult of personality that infects a guy like Trump. I don't like it. I think it's unhealthy and disgusting. And like, there's plenty of dysfunction on the right as well. And a lot of that stuff that was not gonna be solved through proper political persuasion. It's like people actually realizing they're, they're an embodied human being that has needs that are not being met because they're too busy uh, posting memes on Facebook. Yeah, I would just say this. I think uh, a lot of that comes from just having a purpose. And w- what I think is like almost unfortunately revelatory for some people is that purpose should have nothing to do with what other people do. And what I mean by that is like, yeah, endorse and encourage what other people are doing. But but I think sometimes we we've, we've mistaken shutting people down as a purpose or what other people are doing that we don't like is now our purpose. Um, your purpose should come from something else other than what other people are doing. Um, it should come from inside and it should come from something that you, things that you're passionate about. Because I, I really do think if we were busy doing things that were actually constructive, we would have so little time for deconstruction. And this is why people should have kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely takes up some time. The- it, like if you're having a hard time in your 20s, transcending the ego and finding something outside of yourself to care about, just have kids. That stuff will happen real quick, whether or not you want it to happen. Like that's, yeah. it's a particularly for men, I think. It's a, it's a way that just like reality forces you to transcend your ego, whether you want to or not. Cause like yeah. that diaper is not getting changed. If you don't change it, bro, Jeez. like that, that screaming baby is not going to go back to sleep unless you comfort the baby and the baby goes back to sleep. Like I, it, yeah. it makes you. And I say, this is someone who like, you know, is like, like a pretty good dad, but has plenty of room for improvement, but that it, I regularly feel it making me become a better person who transcends my ego it, that I probably in ways that I wouldn't do if I didn't have kids. It's like, well, I, I, yeah, I think you're 100% right there. My only reservation there is that unfortunately, because of how invasive the woke movement is, it's also invaded the mind of parents. And now parents are using their kids for virtue signaling. Um, and so you see this in terms of like this woman that just posted a TikTok video about her son being a bully instead of actually going to discipline her son. She's outing her son as a bully in front of the TikTok world and getting millions of views. And then so it's th- almost like she cares more about boosting her own brand than actually letting her like helping her son. Like being a, being a damn parent. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll stick to my guns and say that uh, wherever the woke movement is and if uh, God is a solution for it, then all the better. Uh, but uh, <laughs> OK, OK. <laughs> but I, I just know that uh, uh, if we continue at pace, I think we definitely will. Or we're looking at two different Americas and an increased sense of polarization, a, uh, an increased sense of distrust in institutions, which I think will drive an increased sense of despair. Um, and as, as pessimistic as that sounds, um, maybe perhaps that's good because it will help us wake up and realize that we need to start reevaluating, um, our value system here uh, in America and beyond. I mean, yeah, I don't, there's some people 
who appear to not be bothered by the prospect of a cleaving of America. I think that would be a, a tragedy of unimaginable I agree. Uh, uh, epic proportions that I think America is, I buy a lot of the kind of cringy July 4th patriotic exceptionalism stuff. I mean, the more the world you see, the more you're likely to endorse that conception of America, that you begin to forgive us some of our flaws, given, given, how the red, the societies the are structured, man. <laughs> like yeah. how much oppression and racism and sexism and violence and tribal violence and domination and corruption are like the base level uh, are, are the base level experience of most humans in most society throughout the course of history. And you're like, wow, this has been it's pretty miraculous what we've been able to achieve here. And but but though for me, I like again, this is why part of the the reason America is miraculous is because of things like its diversity and because of the fact that it is hospitable to people of many yeah. different creeds and faiths but it everybody comes together though to endorse some of the basic foundational tenets of the American project and where stuff gets dangerous is when people that have a lot of money and influence and followers start attacking those base level foundational characteristics of the American experiment. That's where you're like, oh, this is not great. This yeah. is not great. Dude, this is not going to work out well. Because in, in times past, if you look at the 60s, the critiques of the foundations of America came from the shaggy haired fringe, right? Like there are plenty of people going on extended monologues about America just being a thinly cloaked white supremacist conspiracy but those people didn't have any power. And most of the time they were being rejected by and critiqued by the power. The, the difference now is that the people that are going on the extended monologues about America being this irredeemable white supremacist conspiracy are the ones that have the power, like yeah. literally have the power in the White House or have the power of influence in the New York Times. Like that's where it's like, this is not great. Yeah. <laughs> it's not great. The people that we trust to tell us the story about ourselves are telling us a story about our own <laughs> irredeemable evil. <laughs> it's yeah. not great. Not yeah. great. And then the conspiracy doesn't become the conspiracy anymore when those people actually have the power to kind of re-engineer things. Um, all right. So uh, we'll we'll probably tackle most of the world's issues uh, when you come back, hopefully in the future, and announce uh, the project that uh, that you're working on. I'll definitely pass it along. Happy to talk to you about it. Okay, awesome. So I look forward to doing that. Uh, before I let you go, though, uh, I just want to say fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, man. Uh, I really appreciate your heart. I appreciate you being willing to come on and the hard work that you're doing. I don't want people to miss it. So help the, uh, help my audience know, and I will put everything that you're about to mention and more down in the description, but help us know how we can follow you and how we can see the work that you're doing. Yeah, the best way, just if you just go to goodkidproductions.com, You'll see all our stuff. And the very first thing on there is a link to our YouTube page. So people should go check out our stuff. And if they like it, they ought to subscribe. They should tell their friends. We're trying to build a baller audience of people that like the stuff that we're making. So goodkidproductions.com. And then if they want to go... Um, and if they want to go just directly to one of the videos, they can they can also just go to um, KanyeWestwing.us. That URL still works. <laughs> KanyeWestwing.us will take you to what is the kind of tentpole founding cornerstone documentary of our YouTube page, which is this, I think, contrarian defense of Kanye West's uh, run for president last year. Okay, awesome. Well, man, thank you so much for everything you're doing, and thanks for being on today. Thanks, Reed. Appreciate it, ma'am. Do pass it along once it comes out. Absolutely. And everybody, thank you for watching. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share.
Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>